This podcast is produced by KPP Financial. Steve Peasley, President. KPP Financial. Independent thinking, shared success. And now today's podcast. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome to Invest Talk. This is our Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020 edition of Invest Talk. And guess what? That also means it is election day. Finally, we can get a resolution to what so many people have been bickering over and arguing about and, and spending so much mental energy on something that certainly important, but it's also not the end-all be-all of anyone's life or uh, the investment world, which is obviously something that we talk about a lot. I know there's there's certainly ramifications, but people put so much stock into who is president, who's in charge of certain uh, houses of Congress. And while it does play a part, it's only one part. Okay. And currently at this recording, we're at about uh, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern time. So some of the polls are starting to come in. Uh, but we're probably not going to know the final results for probably till the morning. And after hours, you're going to see some volatility, uh, market jockeying based on results, etc., and likely volatility for the balance of the year as appointees for either a continuation of the current administration or a new administration uh, come out and how that will impact different industries, uh, etc. So all of these things are important when it comes to uh, different industries. And But once again, it's only part of the equation. And so you have to take the results and combine them with the economic backdrop, uh, the regulatory backdrop, uh, the geopolitical backdrop, which often is just as important, right? And that can mean changes across the world, not just here in the United States. So our goal here on Invest Talk is to help provide you with unbiased answers to your finance and investment questions. And that's really the most important thing that we do on this show is our goal is to make money for ourselves, for our clients, and to help you do so. And the only thing that matters is what is going to happen, not our opinion of what should happen, not your opinion of what should happen. And this election reflects a lot of that. A lot of people tie their opinions into their investment thesis. And just like uh, the caller yesterday talking about ExxonMobil and should I wait until election or until inauguration day to buy Exxon? Well, that's one factor once again. And so don't try, don't allow your politics to drive your investment strategy. What should drive your investment strategy are your goals. And what your honest expectations are for the future of what will happen, not what you hope will happen. Okay. So give me a call. I'm ready to take your calls at 888-99-CHART, 888 
Let's check in on the market today. A pretty strong up day, especially for the Russell 2000. Another continuation of small caps starting to break out. The ratio between small caps and the NASDAQ is at the highest level since the beginning of August. You're starting to see this trend change. It's really been since March. Uh, the small caps have been underperforming the NASDAQ, but it's starting to make a higher high, higher low now, and that is an important trend change, and that is reflecting a Biden administra- a, a, an expected Biden administration, I believe, that is going to do more fiscal stimulus. Once again, this is not about what should happen, it's about what you expect to happen. That's what I expect to happen. And that will drive more money into industries that maybe aren't so hot as right now, like technology. Technology industry doesn't need more money. They don't need more stimulus. They don't need more help from government. What does? Industrial. Utilities. Restaurants. Right? Service industry. Kind of the bread and butter parts of the economy. And there's likely going to be money spent and pushed in that direction. That's why I think you're seeing this area do well. Now, let's get to our first caller question for the day at 8899 chart. Hi, this is Nick calling from Wyoming. I'm looking for a biosimulation play that's profitable. And I'm wondering what you guys think about ANSYS, ticker A-N-S-S. Thank you. Bye. All right, ANSS. This is ANSYS Incorporated. They develop engineering simulation software applications for the design, analysis, and prototype assessment. $27 billion market cap. So they're in the, looks like a, a cloud play, but for the help of developing of drugs, it looks like. Is that what I'm reading? I have a couple sources on what they actually do. So let me bring up my other one. Because, you know, when you have these type of software companies and complex industries, you really need to understand what their business is overall. Yeah, so it provides simulation capabilities for structural fluid, semiconductor power, embedded software, optical and electromagnetic properties. Interesting, okay. Uh, 50,000 customers globally, including those in the aerospace, defense, and automotive. Okay, so it's uh, it helps design certain types of products, and their business has been doing very well. You're talking about earnings in 2013 at $3.27, and they've been consistently growing that earnings. This year, expected to be $6.10, down a little bit from uh, last year because of COVID. I'm sure there's uh, some impact there, but up next year, expected to be $6.89, an all-time high. The question, the problem here is that it's pretty expensive. It's an expensive uh, company when it comes to uh, valuation. You're talking about enterprise value to even a 48. Extremely high. Extremely high. Especially when even before COVID, growth was slowing. Fourth quarter of last year, revenue is only up 17%. Earnings up 5% year over year. Even if you throw out the last two quarters, which pretty much had negative growth across the board, you're talking about a company that was had slowing growth. 
And so that's my biggest issue here is the valuation is extremely stretched. If interest rates start to rise, start discounting uh, those future cash flows at a lower amount or at a higher amount, excuse me, that's going to bring down the multiples on this name. So uh, I like the business. I like the company. I just don't like the valuation. It is still too stretched. And you recently made a lower high and lower low. So the technicals are starting to weaken as well. I just think it's way overvalued. This needs to be in the low 200s. Right now it's in the low 300s. And preferably, I would like it to be about 175 to 190. That would be an area where I would like to pick it up. I like the business. I just think it's far too expensive at these prices. You're listening to Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We're now moving fast through the fourth quarter. And we know there's going to be plenty of volatility post-election. And for investors, it's never more essential to be vigilant about your strategy and lining up your risk tolerance with your portfolio risk as well. So let's talk about what is ever that is on your mind. Your participation is an important part of the mix. We're taking your calls live at 888-99-CHART. This is InvestTalk. Please tell your friends and family members that they can download our weekday podcast for free anytime at InvestTalk.com or iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And when you download and listen, please be sure to rate our podcasts. Our anytime listener line is open, and Steve and Justin are taking your calls now. 888-99-CHART. And my focus point today concerns this story. The big malls are being dragged into bankruptcy by the carnage at their retail tenants. I'm going to cover a couple of pretty big bankruptcies in this industry. And what that means overall, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Uh, what does it mean for those properties? And what's really driving uh, the issue? We, I kinda, you kind of know what's driving it. But uh, what does it look like going forward? Also... I want to touch on where we are in the longer term debt cycle and what the uh, why there was not inflation when the Fed started doing QE a decade plus ago, right? The the policies of the last cycle. And I want to review that and then talk about where we are today and how potentially this could be a different story when it comes to inflation and the way the economy moves and what drives the economy. I think it's very important to really understand that backdrop so that you can fairly assess what is likely to occur based on certain policy decisions that come out of governments. And then stock market bubble. I want to talk about what typically drives a stock market bubble. Are we there today? What maybe what boxes actually are checked and what are not? And then lastly, if we have time, how well did the market do under various presidents? We're going to go back and look at the first 952 trading days of each presidency going back to Ronald Reagan, so the past uh, almost 40 years now. So I want to touch on all of those. I think that will be an interesting uh, look to see what markets did and which ones did better, worse, etc. Now let's go straight back to our Invest Talk Voice Bank. This came in earlier at 888.99 chart. 
Yes, this is Brian from Texas, and I was wondering about uh, emerging market ETFs, uh, particularly Brazil. I know they've been beat up, and what's the outlook, in your opinion, on some of those emerging markets? Thanks. Well, emerging markets are tough. There's, uh, they're, not, they're not all driven by the same factors. Now, certainly a weaker dollar, which is likely going forward because of our fiscal situation, a weaker dollar typically is good for emerging markets. And if you're speaking about Brazil, there's a certain aspect of their economy that really drives how well something like an EWZ will do, right? EWZ is the iShares MSCI Brazil ETF. And oil prices are typically going to be the driver. And you can see that there's a strong correlation to XLE and EWZ. So if you're looking for emerging markets, there are different drivers, however. right? India has a different driver than, than China. Right? China is more state-run. And the policies that come out of their government will drive the economic activity in the short term. Whereas Brazil... Going back to that example, oil prices will drive the economic activity and prosperity of that particular country. Same with a Russia. Okay, so I don't want to paint a broad brush across all emerging markets because they are very different in their own right. Now, I like oil and natural gas in uh, over the long term at these prices. I think we're heading into a more inflationary environment, and typically that means more dollars, more currency chasing after finite goods, finite assets. And even though oil is in oversupply now, it won't be forever. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. And in these uncertain times, it is natural for investors to be unsure about how much risk is in their portfolio. Different people, of course, have different levels of risk tolerance, and their portfolios are constructed differently. Some just buy a lot of different companies willy-nilly because they heard it from a friend or whatever. Others have, use mutual funds and uh, have some sort of broad maybe indexing strategy, and there's everywhere in between. But how can you understand and deal with your risk tolerance? My advice is to take our free risk questionnaire over at investtalk.com. It's called Riskalyze. Stephen, I can use the results to develop a strategy that works best for you. And now we're taking your calls live at 888-99-CHART. The fourth quarter is moving fast. There's an autumn chill in the air and uncertainty in the markets. So you've got finance and investment questions for Steve and Justin. And the phone lines never close. Call InvestTalk. 888-99-CHART. My focus point today concerns this story. The big malls are being dragged into bankruptcy by the carnage at their retail tenants. Now, we know the likes of JCPenney and many other department stores are struggling. And that is not only driving some of them into bankruptcy, but some of their landlords as well. And you've seen that with recent Chapter 11 
bankruptcy protection filings by the likes of Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust, as well as CBL and Associate Properties. And they filed this on Sunday, citing pandemic-induced pressures on their tenants and, in turn, themselves. And together, combined, they account for 60, sorry, 87 million square feet of real estate across the United States. That's according to their recent filing. And their quote is basically saying that retailers continue to reduce their store footprints. And while brick and mortar is here to stay, the focus is on high quality locations. Now, most of these properties are in B-class malls meaning that they bring in fewer sales per square foot than their better-placed rivals. Now, most of the, those better-placed rivals are open-air retail centers, closer to city centers. A lot of these malls were out there, I don't want to say in the sticks, but they were further away from city centers, let's just say that. And they've lost many of their anchor stores, like JCPenney and Sears. And so... That was driving at least some traffic still. And now that most uh, sales are online, or at least a lot of sales have moved online, it's really pressuring those businesses that that operate within them. And this is when I speak to listeners, and they call about REITs, right, that are producing extremely high yields. And in this environment, you need to be very selective. And this is why, because... You're seeing these two REITs go bankrupt, and there's also many other retail REITs that are pressured as well. So don't think that, don't be fooled by higher yields, and you have to understand the longer term. Remember, this isn't just a cyclical downturn. This is a cyclical downturn within a secular trend. Remember, secular is longer term. These are trends that play out over Decades and multiple economic cycles, right? The decline of brick-and-mortar retail has been in the works for many years, really since Amazon started to rise in the early 2000s. And so it's very difficult for a business to operate with a debt, right? That's why you go into bankrupt, bankruptcy, debt in a downturn in an economic cycle, and what that means is, even in the upswing, say things get better, you're unlikely to get back to the highs pre-recession. Because stores close, in this case, and while some may come back, most will not. And so, don't go chasing highly indebted REITs or, or businesses in the marketplace that are paying some sort of high dividend yield. Simply because that's what all you're looking at. And that's what so many people do is they just look at that dividend yield and they don't focus on the underlying business. That's dr- what's driving that business. Do they have a headwind because of a secular trend or do they have a tailwind behind them because of a secular t- trend? Those are very important. Now, as you know, we get caller questions from all across America, and here comes a question from a listener in Florida. Hey, Justin. Hey, Steve. This is Vince from Tampa, Florida. I was uh, just wondering about uh, stock Penn National Gaming, ticker P-E-N-N. Got a lot of hype since they acquired, I believe, 36% of Barstool Sports, which is like a very hot social media company, quite popular with the millennials these days. 
since then, they've 52-week lows about $4, 52-week highs about 74 My cost per basis is pretty low. I'm up over 100%. just wanted your thoughts on the stock in general as a whole and the future of that industry and if I should look to take some profits now. Thanks. Love the show. Bye. All right, looking at Penn National Gaming, and he is correct. They did take a stake in Barstool Sports, and this has really been fueled since the pandemic because of Dave Portnoy and the, I believe he's the CEO of Barstool Sports, and he suddenly, now that he couldn't bet on pro sports, he started to day trade, and he has a day trading uh, live feed, and he bets some millions of dollars or places trades on millions of dollars worth of different stock and he owns a lot of pen and there's certainly been more eyeballs on barstool sorts because of the pandemic online in general but definitely because of dave's personality he's a great marketer in that way problem with pen is that very few a very small percentage of their revenue and profits come from their ownership in barstool sports overall it's still a gaming company. And it, uh, it offers live sport, sports betting uh, in Indiana, Iowa, Mississippi, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. And so this is a very cyclical name. It's very expensive in relation to its expected profits next year of only $1.58. It owns 41 gaming properties with uh, its table games, etc., and slot machines. And so that's where the majority of their business comes from. So while I like some of the regional gamers, this is not my favorite, especially at these prices. I would definitely take the majority, if not all, off the table at these prices because it's extremely expensive. Thanks for the call. 8899-CHART, 8899-24278. Give me a call. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the Internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach 
involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. This is Invest Talk, the radio program and podcast dedicated to helping you achieve financial freedom. You may be a regular listener. You may even have called a few times. But if you've never called, what are you waiting for? The phone lines are open, and Steve and Justin would love to hear your questions right now. Call 888-99-CHART. On the next Invest Talk, a story that explains this opinion, the biggest U.S. banks aren't as strong as they look. In spite of being boosted by capital relief measures and massive market support from the Federal Reserve, an advocacy group claims the largest U.S. banks are less healthy than they appear. Steve will get to that story tomorrow. But for now, let's grab a live call from John in Sunnyvale, California, looking at monolithic power systems you own or are you looking to buy it. Hi, Justin. Uh, no, I currently don't own this stock. Um, more or less looking at this for uh, a 5G play or um, just as a long-term hold. Um, do you think I'm just chasing gains or do you think it can go higher? Well, in the near term, it definitely could go higher. The technicals look fine. It's been consolidating here around $320 a share after a recent move up in the month of uh, September and early October. And its business is very strong. Revenues last quarter were up 54%, earnings up 56%. And so it's a solid growth company, but it is extremely expensive. It has a pristine balance sheet, no debt, strong cash flow, trailing 12 months, $200 million. However, its market cap at the moment is $14 billion. So it's just expensive for what it is. It's definitely a great company. But to me, the value is closer to $150 than $300. Right? You're talking about enterprise value to EBITDA of $88.0. That's pretty steep in my book. Uh, so it's absolutely a name I would keep on my watch list. But it is way, way, way too expensive for what it is. Um, I think you're chasing gains here. It's done very well recently. Uh, but I would absolutely wait on it just because of that valuation. Thanks for the call. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. As I get through and ask your question, we have about 20 minutes left in the show. So I encourage you to give us a call. Now, what I want to do is set up your mindset for how to think about the economy going forward. Now, I'll be honest with you, there's a lot that I've learned over the past decade of what central banks' 
policy does for the economy, what fiscal policy does for the economy. And I'm a I'm a student of history. I like to look at long-term cycles, talking 100-plus years, and see how different ideas, different strategies, different, different policy prescriptions play out over various decades, and how previous times are very similar to, say, our times. Now, if you look at history... What we are is at the end of the long-term debt cycle. And this is something Ray Dalio talks a lot about. And it talks, it's referring to the multi-decade peak in public and private debt relative to the size of the overall economy and the money, money supply. Now, this happens when interest rates hit zero, right? Where when what, what Keynesian economics is, is encouraging the growth of debt, right? To keep debt growing, you need, the, the philosophy is to lower interest rates, get people to borrow, get businesses to borrow, and that drives economic activity. But at some point, you lower them all the way to zero. And then we've, we got there a little over a decade ago. Now, many people said in 2008 that this was going to drive inflation. Inflation was going to go crazy. And looking back, that didn't happen. Well, why? Well, there's a couple reasons. There's, there's many reasons, but there's one big reason. The one big reason is that what happened with QE, as well as the TARP, remember TARP, was to recapitalize banks. Banks were in a tough situation back then. And basically, policy was driven to repair the bank balance sheets. And so, the money did not flow into the real economy. It flowed onto bank balance sheets, made sure the banking system was solvent, and we added regulation, etc. And the growth of lending didn't really take off. Really until about 2012, 13. That's when you started to see the housing market take off, the economy really take off. It struggled for a little while because the banks were scarred as well. So they weren't lending nearly as much. And so that's the story of the first few QE programs. And so that's why it wasn't inflationary. And then there were some deflationary forces. First, high private debt levels. Right When consumers and businesses have a lot of debt, it restrains our activity and we become risk averse. Next, slowing population growth and aging demographics is also deflationary because we demand less resources. And you've seen that happen with baby boomers retiring now. Technology has also been deflationary. Makes things cheaper and better and easier. Wealth concentration in fewer hands is also deflationary. So what QE did was create asset inflation, not inflation in the real economy. And so when money flows more and more to the wealthy, they have a marginal propensity to save more than spend, right? If you're worth millions of dollars and you get an extra couple hundred thousand dollars in your pocket, are you going to spend it? Are you going to change your habits? Unlikely. So your marginal propensity to spend is very low. And so that was deflationary as wealth continued to concentrate in the, the, the higher uh, percentages. 
Commodity oversupply was also deflationary. Remember in the, the late 2000, 2006, 7, 8, 9, oil prices were going up. Commodity prices were rising fast. And that created oversupply. And you saw that bust. Remember oil at $130 a barrel and it busted all the way down to in the teens. And so that was deflationary. And then outsourcing was deflationary, right? Lowering labor costs of goods and puts downward pressure on the wages of Americans. So all of those factors were deflationary along with a monetary policy that was, wasn't necessarily deflationary, but it certainly wasn't inflationary because it didn't get money into the real economy. So after the break, what I'm, or after this call, I'm going to get to what the next phase is and how will we know whether the next policy prescription is going to be inflationary. So let's keep things moving. Here comes another listener question, this time from New Jersey. Hello, Stephen Justin. This is Ogi from New Jersey. I have a question regarding dividends. I was wondering if holding dividend-paying stocks in a regular taxable brokerage account makes any sense. Not necessarily looking for income. I'm 36 years old. So I was wondering, because of the tax consequence, right? Um, those dividends will be taxable. And, and since it's a regular brokerage account, I don't know if, if it makes sense at this stage of my investing career to be holding those stocks. Thank you. I'll be looking for the answer on the podcast. Well, there is a tax advantage nature of dividends, right? Taxed at 15, 20%, depending on your income level. Sometimes zero if you're low income. Doesn't sound like you're low income. But there is a tax advantage of that. And it keeps management disciplined from making bad investment allocation decisions, typically, broadly. Uh, so your, your answer to your question, though, is more personal, more a question for your CPA, your accountant, and whether you're okay with paying a little bit of tax on that dividend income. There's nothing wrong with that. Longer term, dividends are a large percentage of the gain in the stock market. And so we like dividend payers. I'm a big fan of dividend payers. It doesn't have to be a big dividend payer. If it only pays half a percent yield, it's enough for me, right? As long as that dividend is growing. So that's what I like to see. I like to see dividends that are consistent and growing for me. And that's more important and the tax question that's more personal and for your CPA and yourself to decide. Now getting back to what I was talking about before and the the deflationary forces. Now in a, a system where there's not a lot of debt, structural deflation is often very good, right? Cuz technological improvements uh things like that will would be a good thing. It means purchasing power grows over time, productivity gains, make things, uh, makes things cost less, improves quality, etc. You get more value for the dollar, right? Things are cheaper. However, when debt is very high, like over the past couple decades, deflation breaks things. It makes servicing that debt very hard. And you get defaults. Okay, so that's been the problem here is that the, all those deflationary forces that I just spoke about met a highly indebted system, and that's why we've had stagnant growth. And most of the inflation from that money printing, from that QE, moved into stocks, bonds, gold, private equity, 
fine art, etc. So CPI, CP, PCE, those haven't been really reflecting other types of inflation in the economy. Now, what is the next policy procedure? Or prescription, excuse me. Well, it's moving from the fiscal, sorry, the monetary authorities to the fiscal authorities. We've seen that recently, right? Where the Fed and the central bank are getting together to solve the problem of COVID, right? Buying up corporate bonds, junk bonds, mortgage bonds, and monetizing the debt that's been put on by the CARES Act. And that's really where we're headed next. And so if you can get enough stimulus to counter those deflationary forces, because the deflationary forces I spoke about earlier are largely still there. And the previous cycle, the destruction in household wealth was about $11 trillion. And the QE response was about $3.5 trillion over the preceding, right, from in 2008, it was about $11 trillion, uh, the, the decline from 2007 to 2009. Remember, that was a, the peak in the stock market was, was fall 2007. The bottom was the spring of 2009. And so over that time, household wealth declined by $11 trillion. So $3.5 trillion in money printing wasn't going to create hyperinflation. It didn't fill the gap nearly enough. And so... Typically, the Fed is in relying on banks to improve the lending, right? To lend more, to create more dollars. That's where dollars are, are created in our, in our system, by commercial banks, typically, by lending. If they're not doing so, they need to fill the, fill the gap. And so this recent CARES Act certainly solves a lot of problems in the near term. But the bigger question is, will this be a one-off events or will this be continuing we know there's going to be another stimulus package and if it's two or three trillion that's that will help the economy yes that things things will get a little bit better the question though is will it be followed up again will there be consistency of maybe twelve hundred dollar checks every month will there be some sort of mmt those policy prescriptions would absolutely create inflation. It would counter those deflationary trends that I talked about before. And so this is what I'm looking for going forward is how are governments stimulating economies and that would be extremely important. I'm Justin Klein. You listen to Invest Talk. You are not alone. As you might assume, the greatest number of our listeners are here in the U.S., but also from around the world. We have people from Cambodia, Germany, Czech Republic, Mexico, Greece, Egypt even. We approached 900,000 downloads for the month of September. And Steve and I thank you for downloading InvestTalk and also telling your friends and family members about our free investing and financial podcast. Please keep those calls and questions coming. We'd love to hear from you. Remember, our website, investtalk.com, has a good number of resources available to assist you with your goal of building a solid financial future. 
So if you're unsure on how, on how to start, I suggest you take our Risklize Risk Questionnaire. It will help you define your investment comfort zone. And of course, you're welcome to call our KPP Financial Offices in Irvine, California at 800-557-5461. We would love to help you. We want to help you. But for now, our phone lines are open at 888-99-CHART. Hi, Stephen, Justin. This is Mike from Tracy. I'm looking at Lamb Research and wanting to know what's a good entry point for this stock for maybe a long-term hold. So I look forward to hearing it on your podcast. Thanks. Have a great day. I was looking at Lamb Research. This is a semiconductor manufacturing equipment provider. So they make the equipment to build and produce semiconductors. And this has been a great business for a long period of time, even though they're in an industry that typically is relatively cyclical. Meaning, it, the prospects of their business ebb and flow with the economic cycle, typically. But they've been growing their profits and earnings consistently for a decade plus. $53 billion market cap revenue grew 47% last quarter, 78% the quarter before. I, I think this is a little bit overvalued here. Not a lot. I would say around the 320 to 325 mark. That's an area where I would like to be a buyer of Lamb Research. So uh, I like the company, but it needs to be a little bit lower. And I think you'll get that between now and the beginning of the year. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here is to help you achieve your own particular version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888 chart Look at the calendar. We are into November and on our way to Thanksgiving and then Christmas. Of course, the holidays may look a little different this year. But now, you've got finance and investment questions. Steve and Justin welcome your calls. Invest Talk, 888 99Chart. Hey, Steve and Justin. It's Robert over in Rosemead, California. I have a question about Switch. It's a data center company, relatively small compared to its peers, such as Digital Realty, Equinix. I do own those, those bigger data center companies. But I wanted to kind of add Switch into my portfolio. It's a small player. The price is relatively small, and it, it's taken a big hit since the coronavirus. And right now, it seems to be near its low. I'll look forward to hearing your opinion on the show. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Oh, and happy Halloween. Thank you for that, even though we're answering this post-Halloween, but appreciate it. And he's looking at Switch. SWCH is a symbol. It develops and operates data centers in Nevada, and the company provides co-location, space, and related services. This is a business that has been kind of all over the place. They made 29 cents in 2015, and last year they made 11 cents. And only 14 cents expected this year, 25 cents next year. And the biggest issue here is that their cash flow is negative, trailing 12 months, negative 154 million. And since 2015, when they went public, they've been in negative territory when it comes to cash flow. Now, certainly a lot of that has to do with probably building new centers, et cetera, and I get that. However, they've also been issuing a lot of shares and it's been all over the place. When 2015, they had 31 million shares outstanding. Some of they got that down to 8 million in 2017, but it exploded to 246 million recently. So that worries me. Why are they 
diluting shareholders. And technically, it is now in a downtrend, a solid downtrend. It's 52-week high is $20. Now it's at $14.50, over 25% lower from its high just in August. So while I like the business, I would stick with the bigger names. This is just not performing very well. It's business prospects don't look that great when it comes to profitability. They have a lot of debt. So I just pass on it. Thanks for the call. That was Switch, SWCH. Now, closing, I want to speak about the market and each presidency, right? We're going to get a, a presidential winner probably by the end of the night. And the big question is, what does that mean for markets? Let's go back to Reagan and on forward. In the first 952 trading days of each presidency, and this is using the same amount of days as closing on Friday for the Trump presidency. Now, the Trump presidency, the market's up 44%. Over the same time frame, under the Reagan's first term, it was up 27%, so better. George H.W. Bush, however, was up 46%, so a little worse. Clinton was up 62% over his first uh, 952 trading days, call it three and three quarters of a year. George W. Bush was down 13%. You know, he started in a tough place with, uh, he took office as the tech bubble was kind of wrecking, right? And then you had 9-11. So there's a lot of issues that drove the, the markets down over those first four years. Under Obama, however, markets were up 75%. Now, that's kind of the opposite, right? He took office after, in the financial crisis, when the markets were already down a lot. So there was certainly some reflexive, aspects to that performance as well. But what it shows you is that presidents encounter various challenges over their over their four years or eight years. And a lot of it is out of their control. Most of it is out of their control. When you take office, what the economy looks like when you take office is out of your control. What disasters, what terrorist attacks out of your control, right? So while Trump's performance for the, on the economy, or on the markets, I wouldn't say the economy. I don't want to say the economy because I don't want to conflate the economy and markets. We know that they can certainly divorce from each other for some time. But Trump was about average over the last six presidents in his first four years when it comes to stock market gains. I'm Justin Klein, and this completes another Invest Talk program. I'll return Thursday. In the meantime, please tell your friends and family members that they can choose from over 100 archived Invest Talk podcasts for free download on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, as well as investtalk.com, where you can also rate our podcast as well. We would appreciate it. Remember, we also stream the program live weekdays in the 4 o'clock Pacific Time Hour at investtalk.com. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically. Nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell securities. 
Such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor, which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is President and Justin Klein Chief Executive Officer of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial. And they thank you for listening and welcome your comments or questions on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.